Well, we are in week three of Trading Up. It's our Christmas series, our, our first Christmas actually here at a new location. And we're just simply uh, invoking the question into our thoughts. If you could trade up any aspect of your life, what would that be? If you just had one wish or one trade, what would you trade up for? We, we, we talked about in week one, two weeks ago, this idea of this 26-year-old, uh, I believe his name was Kyle, and uh, he had this, he had this uh, red paper clip and a problem. Uh, Kyle had a red paper clip but wanted to live on his own. He was living with mom and dad, didn't have a job, didn't have any prospects, but he had the internet, and the internet's a powerful thing, we found out, right, in week one. That a year later and 14 trades later, Kyle went from owning a red paper clip to his very first home. And so we want to we wanna put the question out there, if there is an aspect of your life that you wanted to trade up, maybe, maybe, maybe level up, power up, or have a do-over, what would that aspect of your life be? Uh, in week one, we talked about the, the potential that we can trade up despair uh, for hope, right? We talked about the conversation that Jesus had with this woman at the well, that she had nothing even to give, no, nothing to even trade up for, let alone a red paper clip, and yet Jesus offered her this beautiful promise, this tangible promise that there is actually hope in the world and that, that he is hope. Last week we talked about trading up uh, stress for peace, and we explored this, this conversation that Jesus was having with Simon, who was a, a Pharisee, a local uh, religious leader, like Bible college professor, so to speak, in, in the first century, and, and in walks in this quote-unquote sinful woman. Uh, religious people are great with labels. And she interrupts this meal, and she falls at Jesus' feet, basically pleading to Jesus for her life. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, you can, you can go in peace. Your, your, faith has, your faith has saved you. Clearly, your faith is not in the law. It's in me, which is where your faith should be. So today we're going to talk about uh, kind of a big promise. Some of us, maybe myself included, might think that it might be a little bit out of our reach. But this promise that we can trade up sorrow for joy. One of the things that I love about the Christmas season is just sort of the anticipation of Christmas morning. Uh, I'm still a little kid. I get up really early and I run downstairs as, you know, waiting for Santa to show up. And I grew up in a family where Christmas music was played the day after Halloween. I'm that guy. Uh, but I'm married now. And uh, as I've said before to many of you, my friends here, uh, it's more important to be married than to be right. So now I listen, <laughs> now I listen to Christmas music the day after Thanksgiving, right? And uh, I'm, I'm a better man for it. You, th you, think about, you think about the holidays, right? It's how crazy it is. Like, you, you go to any Target, Walmart, or mall, and people are running around. They've been shopping for four hours. They've got their hoodies on. Like, no makeup. Sweat's dripping off their forehead. You know, it's just, it's just a nightmare. People are, you know, elbowing, trying to get the best deal or whatever. And I'm like, Cyber Monday. Um, and then over the speaker, you hear Christmas music. Like, deep theologically rich Christmas music. Maybe you've been uh, <laughs> at a rest stop called the food court uh, taking a break, and you're just tired, your bones ache, and you're waiting for your spouse. I'm not going to say who, which one, but you're waiting for your spouse to finish uh, shopping or your kids to finish uh, hanging out with their friends. And then over the speaker you hear, long lay the world in sin in a food court. Like, that, that's not, like, how is that? What about separation of church and state? Long lay the world in sin and arrow pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You're like, I'm just trying to eat this pretzel. I'm not even trying to feel the depth of my soul right now, right? And you hear other songs over the radio 
uh, or uh, a mall or a coffee shop, that Jesus is Lord, will go King James, at thy birth. Like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty big statement to make in a public forum, right? Like, I don't know about you, but, but I have found that, um, that, or Mary, did you know, right? When, when you're looking at your little baby and you're touching your baby, I'm forgetting the lyrics, but uh, this is a lyric I like, uh, you, you're kissing the face of God. Like, that, that's a pretty, whoa, that's pretty narrow. There's other religions in the world. And yet around this time of the year, uh, our culture is pretty acceptable of playing overtly religious music in public forums, right? I remember uh, one of my favorite um, uh, Christmas experiences was going to the 11 o'clock p.m. Christmas Eve service uh, at, my, at my church. We, because they gave us a candle and they let us set it on fire. So for three boys, that was a win, right? Holding it up, waiting to tilt it, put wax on my brother's hand. Um, I, am a, I, am, I am a sinner, but I am also a saint. And oftentimes I'm in both camps at the same time. But I remember my favorite Christmas song was being sung. Our music minister started playing the chords to Oh Holy Night. I love, I love that song. And, and Christmas, it, it's so easy to get religious about Christmas, right? You got to have my traditions or my service times or, you know, you got to make this food at, at, at this hour on this day. And, and, and we can get so caught up in the religiosity of, of the experience that we miss Jesus altogether, and I remember holding the candle, yes, I just made up that word. I remember holding the, holding the candle up in the air, uh, singing the chorus of O Holy Night, right? Fall on your knees, hear the angels' voices. Like everybody has an opinion about Jesus, whether uh, he's worth following or he's a fairy tale or a joke or whatever. But, but also angels, the spiritual realm, they have an opinion about Jesus too. And the song says, Fall on your knees, hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night, when Christ was born. I remember being 18, 19 years old and thinking this odd Christmas thought. Here's the question I thought. Is Christmas our fault? I mean, it's so easy to, to, to feel the warm and fuzzies about a little baby being born, uh, a couple being on the run, and the cuteness and the sweetness of that. But, but, if, but if we're honest, and you'll be like, Ben, calm down. It's not Good Friday yet. Like, we know where this story goes. Is Christmas, is Christmas our fault? Like, what if we had been faithful to the Father back in the garden? What if we didn't need a Savior? Like, like what if we were actually good little Christian boys and girls? right? And, and we always had other people's best interests at heart. And we always did the right thing, and we never messed up. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't need Christmas, would we? Is, is Christmas <clears throat> our fault? I think for, for me, at least that night, uh, Christmas doesn't start in the stable. It starts in the garden. And, and if you're familiar uh, with the story of Genesis, uh, God creates the world in a beautiful poetic part of uh, uh, the first three chapters of Genesis, and he creates Adam and Eve, the first couple on record. Uh, and they get, they get free reign of the garden uh, located between the Tigris and Euphrates River. They can do whatever they want. God says, you can have whatever you like. You can have whatever you like, just not that tree in the middle of the garden. There's something in us 
that wants what we can't have. You see, I think sorrow, the sorrow of Christmas, was first felt in the garden. Adam and Eve could have whatever they wanted. And Eve was having a conversation with what Moses, the writer of the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the devil was having a conversation with Eve and, and asking Eve, did, did God really, I mean, I know he's God, but, you know, he doesn't button all of the loops on his belt that tightly. I mean, I don't know if he's that serious. And this conversation happens, right, in Genesis 3, 2, where uh, the Bible says the woman said, Eve, said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did not, but God did say, you must not eat uh, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And here's the devil. The, like if you're, in, if you're in graphic design or marketing, you want to hire the devil. He's brilliant at telling a story to get people to buy in to what he's selling. And verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the, so the devil said, you know, religion, God's not, it, it's okay, it's okay. And then he makes this promise that if you eat it, actually what will happen is you, your eyes will be open to ultimate reality. You'll be enlightened. You'll be given a higher level of consciousness. I can name right now 20 books in Barnes & Noble that promises me this, these things. Right, this is not anything new. It's not anything new under the sun, especially if you, if you follow, <laughs> like you do on any Friday night, if you follow the history of religion in America. There have been many religions that have, that have sort of sprouted from the ground here in America, let alone the East, where it says, if you, if you give yourself to this religion, you will be enlightened. Uh, you, you will find favor with God. And they didn't find favor with God. They actually felt an emotion that they'd never experienced before when they ate <laughs> The fruit. They felt sorrow. They felt tension in their relationships because they believed this promise that we could actually be the captain of our own souls, right? Like this sense that, like, God might be nice around the holidays, but eh, 11 months out of the year, we can kind of do our own thing. And what's crazy is Adam and Eve for the first time in their marriage, looked at each other autonomously, separate from one another. And, and then th things that, that crept into their marriage were they, they probably began judging each other. It's not my fault. I didn't, I didn't need it. It was, you know, it was Eve, Lord. Hmm. Well, Adam, you didn't lead your family well. You were, you were quiet. You were passive. I think sometimes we let things in our house through our front door that we don't really know is A, knocking, or B, that is actually in our home. And so now, Adam and Eve is feeling the tension in their relationship. Now, Adam and Eve have to, like, listen to one another when they're talking to each other. Now, Adam and Eve need marriage counseling or marriage retreats. And, and now e Adam needs to learn when to be tough and when to be tender, because now they're going to look at each other, not as objects of their affection, but objects to conquer and be dominant over and to be the better person. Sorrow was first felt in the garden, wasn't it? And the Lord had to have a tough conversation with Adam and Eve. 
And in Genesis 3.15, he made a promise to Adam and Eve as a result, sort of, uh, as them going their own way. And in Genesis 3.15, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, God is, is saying that you are going to have violent opposition uh, in your relationships. Uh, I, I think Adam and Eve probably thought that when the Lord said, don't eat this or you will die, they probably thought that way in terms of A and B. If I eat this, the result will be I will die. I will not make it out of uh, the garden. I will end in a coffin and someone will bury me. I will physically, literally die. But what, we, what I don't think they realized, of course I'm taking liberties here, and what we don't realize is that living things are dead. Marriages are dead. Relationships are dead. Uh, tensions in your family this holiday season that, that is being brought up again because it's the holidays are dead. Dead things die, but living things die as well. And I don't think they realize the weight of what would happen should they choose to go their own way, right? Now, as I said before, there's all this animosity and hatred in their marriage. And there's all this animosity and hatred and tension and division within themselves. They don't love themselves. They don't, they don't know who they are. And so now they have a crisis of identity, let alone if they're kind of struggling with, do I even know the Lord? I, 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 I think I'm afraid of him now. God is not a safe relationship. This actually, this, this enmity that uh, the father was telling Adam and Eve rose so high in the Israelite community that God had to, like, like a father that came home from work. I, I would always shiver when my mom said, boys, when your dad comes home from work, he's going to take care of this, okay? My dad was not a peacemaker. He was 6'3 and 350 pounds, okay? It was his way or the highway, okay? I would always shiver. And so the father had to lay down groundwork for his kids, for the Israelites, because the hostility ramped up so much that they started to kill each other. And so in Numbers 35, 20 through 21, the writer says, if anyone with malice or forethought shoves another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, <laughs> it sounds like someone's parenting middle schoolers, or if out of enmity or this malicious hate towards somebody, uh, out of enmity, one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies. That person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. Tension, enmity between God's people was so great that if God did not set up some boundaries, they were going to kill each other. And there's no way that Genesis 3.15 the first, what, what scholars call messianic promise, uh, at least head nod or wink about Jesus or the Messiah, when he comes, he will come in this way. The first prophetic verse of the birth of the Messiah, <clears throat> excuse me, in Genesis 3.15, will not happen if God's people are at each other's throats. Like we are. You don't have to be religious or a Jesus follower to know that there's tension in your relationships. It just exemplifies the, the, 
the, the truth of Genesis 3.15. As I said before, sometimes the holiday season has a way of reminding us that we do have sorrow in our relationships, don't we? That not everything is well. Not everything is good. Not, not everything is as it, as it should be. And so, yes, Adam and Eve did sin against God. There is a black and white deal going on. There was sin, and now there's punishment. But then you also have the abstract gray of grieving the loss of a relationship that is now broken and is now severed. And so now we have to decide what, do we wanna, what voice do we want to listen to? Do we want to keep listening to the ad agency that the devil is running that we can kind of go do our own thing. We can be autonomous, right? My favorite musician, one of them, Paul Simon, we can believe him when he says, I'm a rock, I'm an island. Island doesn't need any friends. We can just kind of go our own way. Uh, or, or will we take steps to trading up our sorrow for joy and finding out that God actually is um, safe? He's, he, he's a God that wants a relationship with us. You see, I believe that sorrow was first felt in the garden but the joy of Christmas was discovered in a manger. There, there's another couple, thousands of years later, right? We talk about them every, every year at Christmas, Mary and Joseph. And they felt the enmity, the tension, the visceral reaction, the malice that, that was promised that, that we would step into when we were born, right? Coming out of the operating room. We are promised that there is tension in our relationships. And they're feeling that all these years later. Because nobody is going to believe a middle school girl when she comes home and says, I'm pregnant, God's the father. No one's going to believe her. And then you've got political leaders that are so insecure with their political position that they, they send a decree that all firstborn sons must be wiped out as if some baby <laughs> in a diaper is a threat to the Roman Empire. Why? Because there is naturally going to be tension <clears throat> in our relationships. There is naturally going to be tension in your theology, in the spiritual realm. Just even asking yourself if there is a spiritual realm. There's tension in our politics. Hello. There's tension in Mary and Joseph or on the run, trying to hold this promise that God has been saying will come to us all the way from the garden. And Luke captures beautifully this announcement of Jesus' arrival in Luke 1, 8 through 11. Luke says, that night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flock, flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and a radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. That's a nice way of saying they were freaked out. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, Jesus, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. I've come to say that there is great news, great joy for all people. All people, oh, that boss that you don't like, all people, that neighbor that plays Christmas music too loud, all people, 
the people that look different than you, that vote different than you, than live different, all people obliterating the box of judgment that we like to keep people in and feel good about ourselves so we can move on with our day. Everybody, the Christmas story, gets a shot at having hope in a relationship with Jesus that Christmas. You see, I, I believe that sorrow was felt in the garden, but the other side of sorrow is that joy was realized in the manger. Amen? What was promised in the garden is being born in the stable. What a beautiful thought. Augustine, who can say it better than me, one of the early church fathers, said that he, Jesus, lies in a manger but contains the world. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes but vests us with immortality. What a beautiful thought. He found no place in the end but makes room for himself in a temple of the hearts of believers in order that weakness might become strong and strength might become weak. I've come with good news, great joy for all people that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is here, that even though that there is tension, maybe even hatred, maybe even malice in your relationships, the joy of the Messiah has finally come. You no longer have to look at your spouse as a separate person trying to dominate over them. You no longer have to look at your coworkers trying to see how long you can uh, one-up them to get the raise or promotion. You no longer have to look at you fill in the blank. It's not a contest anymore. It's not a fight anymore. That weighs on us, right? Not, not just spiritually, but physically, emotionally, medically. A lot of our physical condition and stress and disease and heart failure, like a lot of that is connected to the things that are happening in our life. God wasn't kidding when he said, the weight of this death that you're going to experience, yes, it will be a finality that one day you will die, but the weight of it is the brokenness that you're going to feel and experience in your relationships. And so when Jesus comes, the angels and everybody in the story, all of them have a shot to experience the joy of Christmas. All of them have an opportunity to trade up sorrow for joy. That we no longer have to be in, on the run. That God is for us. And that God is unchanging, which is a really cool concept. Because the promise he made in Genesis 3.15 is being birthed right before Mary and Joseph's eyes. And this joy is not a, it's not a fleeting feeling like you might feel when you, when you get a gift at Christmas that you've been wanting. That, that's, that's happiness. And that's awesome. That's a great experience. But that's not joy. Joy is this heartfelt emotion that is realized when you consider what Christ has done for you in the context that there is actually a spiritual reality to your life. And that's a big ask. If you're here just visiting or you're curious about Jesus or you're kind of like, eh, I did that when I was little. Don't really dig the guilt trip stuff. I'd encourage you to think about that may maybe there is a spiritual realm to this thing that we're experiencing right now called life. And that maybe joy is possible. Now, now, now think about this, right? All the politicians are still after Jesus. 
Mary and Joseph are still on the run. It's not like when you have joy, everything gets better, like the end of a Hallmark card. But there's this <clears throat> real sense of promise that we have that God has come for us, that he's not forgotten uh, us or given up on us. And the message is for all people. The Bible says that joy for the Jesus follower does an incredible work in his or her life. Let me read to you some of these things of what joy brings for the follower of Jesus. Repentance brings joy. The hope of future glory brings joy. The Lord's word brings joy. The prayer brings joy. The presence and fellowship of believers brings joy. Church, community, getting in a life group, it brings joy. Converts bring joy. When we see somebody expressing their faith in Jesus through the waters of baptism, like I've never been to a baptism where everyone's like, eh, I would have dunked them deeper. I've never seen that. Everybody, although my dad tried to do that when he baptized me when I was 10, and for good measure, but everybody claps. When they see life transformation, it does a work in us. When we see other people inviting people to RCC, sharing their faith, watching friends get baptized, it brings a joy in us. What about hearing that those who have uh, mentored our disciples are walking in the truth? That brings joy in us as well. To think about the people that you've discipled, right? Adults, the, the students that you're investing in. Seeing them uh, after college still following Jesus brings joy. Giving brings joy. Believe it or not, it does. It's true. I didn't believe it until my wife and I made giving part of our discipleship, part of our priority, and fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit all bring joy, that we can trade up sorrow for real joy, tangible joy, because joy is not an abstract concept. It's a baby born in a manger, that is God in the OR, in the emergency room, in the waiting room. And he's still God today, right? We can trade up our sorrow for joy. So let me invite you to think about three questions for next steps. As we think about, are we willing to trade up sorrow for joy? The first one is this. What spiritual realities am I currently ignoring in my life? What spiritual realities am I currently ignoring in my life? What, what, am, I, what am I filling up my calendar with so I'm not forced to think about ultimate things? Man, I don't know about you guys, but I do a lot of really good things in the name of hiding behind those things. So, so sometimes I have to force myself to think about ultimate things. I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, where are you sinning? Uh, what I'm talking about is where are we hiding behind doing really good things? But while we're doing that, we're not, we're not thinking about and taking time to rest in what are some of the ultimate things? Second question I want to ask you is what tensions do I currently have in my life? Um, the holidays bring those up. They bring up the tensions that you currently have in your family or with a friend or a loved one. They remind us that uh, loved ones that were with us last year or 10, 20 years ago are, are no longer with us. And the third question I want to invite you to think about is what's keeping you uh, from making a decision to follow Jesus and to express that in baptism? What's keeping you from uh, trading up your sorrow or whatever word you would use for the joy of actually knowing Jesus and following him and having a community 
of Jesus' followers to belong to? What's keeping you from knowing the joy of giving and prayer and reading God's word? I, I, I hope that, that when you're thinking about this, the, the answer is nothing. Nothing's holding me back. I'm ready to take that next step. If that's you, man, I'd love to talk to you after service. If you're like, ah, you're the religious guy, that freaks me out, that's cool too. Uh, on our website, you can swipe left to next steps and let us know what next steps you want to take. We'd love to follow up with you. In just a moment, we're going to take communion together, friends. And uh, I'm going to invite our volunteers to prepare for that. It, it, it's something that we do every week. So if you're new to RCC, communion is an opportunity to reflect on the sacrifice that Christ made for us uh, on the cross and what that means to us. And today, I want to be really specific with this time. Uh, I found this beautiful artist rendering. Uh, I don't know what it's called, so I'm calling it Mary Comforting Eve. And uh, we just want to throw this on the screen and, and give you an opportunity to reflect on it as you take communion uh, this morning. This is a visual representation of Genesis 3.15 that an artist rendered through, I think, uh, is, a, is a painting. This is the promise of Christmas that was told to Adam was told to Eve that one day when, when, my, when, my, um, when my son comes, he will strike the head of the serpent. He will crush not just the power of sin on the cross, but the penalty of sin of the cross. And I, I can't imagine, ladies, I'm, I'm so jealous of you in this moment. I can't imagine what that conversation was like when Mary and Eve connected in heaven. And, and Mary, Mary looked at Eve and said, I told you, God was faithful all the way. And even though there is hostility in our relationships, even though there is sin and sorrow and grief, and, and even though we, most of us live our lives just, try, just surviving and, and trying to one-up somebody else and, and just securing our footing in this whole thing right here called life. Mary said, he's come. He's come. And the sorrow that you felt in the garden with you and Adam, we felt the joy of the promise. My husband and I, Joseph, in the stable, that God has kept his word. And he's not willing to give up on anybody. And, and we heard from the shepherds that this joy that was promised to us at Christmas is for everybody. Not just the convinced, but also the curious. It's for everybody has a shot at experiencing this relationship that Christmas offers. But the sorrow felt in the garden is the joy experienced in the manger. Merry Christmas, RCC. Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the story of these two women. And without the, the faithfulness of these women and the disobedience of these women and the sinner saint, in this aspect of their story, 
there wouldn't be a Christmas. Yeah, Jesus, we, we come to you and before we take communion, we, we admit Christmas is our fault. We, we should have been faithful in the garden. We should have believed you. But there's something about us in our wiring that if we can kind of go our own way and do our own thing and see life how we want to see it, we tend to lean that way, Jesus. And we thank you in this moment as we celebrate communion that even though that Christmas is our fault, you made it about your redemption. And it's a story that is for all people. May that be our heart as a church. May we just love people and let you be the judge and jury of what happens. May we take this message that was so excitable to the, the first century characters in the story that, that we would run <laughs> and share this joy that we have, this real concrete joy. We thank you, Lord, that in the complexity of our lives that you still, you still run after us and that we can be bad in the presence of love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.